0: Thank you for joining us and welcome. You're listening to Hey Siri podcast and I'm Tom Siri. I am the founder and CEO of realself.com. Something I've been doing for well now 13 plus years. And something I really am passionate about is sharing things that I discover and learn. I like to look for not just what trends are out there that are apparent, but underlying insights that can be gathered by looking at meta information paying attention to consumers and what they're saying in our platform, and spending a lot of time with my audience, which are made up of doctors, practices, individuals who have industry relationships in the aesthetic space. Welcome to another episode of Hey Siri. This is Tom Siri, and this is the Siri that gets to the information that you really care about and want to know about. I am so delighted today to have a new guest. I have Rand Fishkin. Rand, welcome to Hey Siri.
1: Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you having me.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have you is I want to talk about your past, but also your leadership, your expertise. I've come to know you over the years and you're also a business creator and someone really who shows up in the world in a positive way, trying to help others grow and expand their businesses and do better. And that's something I try to do with our customers is try to help them grow and succeed in what is a hyper complex world. So I would just love you to start out, rather than me butcher the introduction any more than I have, maybe. Could you just describe yourself to our audience in case they don't know who Rand Fishkin is?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a college dropout, a failed web designer, and then uh, the author of a blog that sort of got my career going called SEO Moz. And that turned into an SEO consulting business search engine optimization, which for folks who might not be familiar, is is kind of the practice of earning organic non-paid traffic from search engines like Google. And that blog, you know, in the early 2000s, 2003, four, five, uh, kind of built our consulting business and then turned into a software subscription business. And Moz raised a few rounds of funding... I was CEO of that company for a long time, until 2014 when I stepped down and then was at the company for a few more years. I changed the name to Moz in 2013. And so Moz today is about a 50-ish dollars year revenue business, a couple hundred employees in the US and Canada. And I left in 2018, just a little over two years ago, and started a new company called Spark Toro raised a very unusual round of funding. I've had my fill of venture. That's not a model that I'm passionate about anymore. And my co-founder Casey and I have been building a web marketing tool or a tool for web marketers to help them with market research and audience intelligence, basically trying to help people get an understanding of what their customers and audience pay attention to, what they read, listen to, follow, watch, et cetera, without having to run big expensive surveys. And I also do a lot of speaking and writing and uh, published a book a couple of years ago called Lost and Founder. And, you know, I have a deep debt of Jewish guilt filling my chest that, you know, every few days when I don't feel like I'm helping people enough, I feel awful about myself and can't sleep and, and have to go write more blog posts and do more webinars and all of that. So that is me in a nutshell. But we'll take advantage of that guilt today (laughs) and also dig into this. You can can join a long line of relatives and uh,
0: friends. (laughs) Well, let's talk a bit about your work passions, at least prior, and maybe carry them to present day. I got to know you, of course, through the venture world or startup world of Seattle, which is maybe too small. (laughs) It's small, and I don't know if it's getting any bigger but one of the other things i've just been a huge fan of is just anytime you would share i think you call them whiteboard fridays uh was your video series
1: yep whiteboard fridays
0: where you just were just incredibly helpful in trying to explain what i consider a black box which is google and seo and search engine optimization so i would love to do a few quick fire finish the sentence type questions and you know (laughs) we won't ponder too long on seo or google but have to ask you these
1: yeah let's do it
0: okay so the first is google is no longer not evil (laughs) i didn't expect that i thought you were going to say an algorithm Um, (laughs) okay and then seo is
1: still a great way to get traffic
0: interesting what about thinking beyond google or seo that means what
1: i think that means building resiliency I think that's a very, very wise move for any marketer, any creative person, anyone who's building a business or an organization of any kind.
0: Excellent. And then last one I have here is the most overlooked and and potentially underutilized marketing strategy is what?
1: Episodic content. Like this podcast. So here's my philosophy on episodic content. The analogy that tends to resonate most with folks is thinking of a network series or a Netflix series and how if you are attracted to and find or discover one episode and it resonates with you, there's an entire catalog of other related content, right? So that's true whether it's I watched one episode of Better Call Saul and the acting was incredible and the cinematography was beautiful. And maybe I should watch a little bit more of that show. Let me see what that's about. Or Whiteboard Friday, right? Hell, oh, hey, here's this Rand guy at the whiteboard explaining this one question I had about SEO for seven minutes. That was pretty good. Maybe I should watch more of this guy. Oh, there's 500 episodes in the, in the catalog. Let me go back a few weeks and start watching. You know what? This is, this is actually really useful to my job. Let me subscribe to this and get it every Friday. Right. I think this is valuable in terms of a podcast, right? If there's one episode that someone listens to and, and maybe they're in whatever web marketing world. And so they see the podcast because I'm on the show and they listen to it and they go, yeah, Tom has interesting guests. I should see who else is on his podcast. Let me, let me go check that out. That value of building up a brand that's associated with the content and a consistency a catalog that is discoverable and amplifiable that is mm. surprisingly powerful and really poorly invested in by most organizations even the ones who do content marketing and SEO and social media marketing well
0: why do you think that's the case why are these organizations not investing in these type of episodic content ideas and franchises is it they want quick return on investment and this is a slow build process or is there something else behind it?
1: I think that is absolutely part of it, impatience. And I think to be totally honest, another big piece is that SEO has biased a lot of people, right? So a lot of people who think about creating content, think about creating content that serves their audience, their customers, their users, whatever. And so they try and figure out, well, what words and phrases are they searching for? okay, I'm going to make a piece that solves this problem. I'm going to make a piece that solves that problem. I'm going to make a piece that solves this next problem. Instead of thinking creatively and sort of longer term and thinking of their content more like television creators or streaming creators think of a series, they think of content as a solution to a single search or a single query. And look, I think you can still have success with SEO, but it's very, very competitive. There are millions, if not tens of millions of content marketers and brands will be competing with you. Google is working very hard to send fewer and fewer clicks out from their search engine and keep more of them for themselves. They and, and all of the social networks as well are biasing to things that keep you on their platform as opposed to sending you off to somewhere else. And episodic content, I think, frankly, is not something many people talk about or consider. Right. I would say I only heard marketers talk about it even a little bit in the last year or two. And even when I was doing Whiteboard Friday, you know, which I did for 10 plus years, right? I don't know that I ever conceptualized and thought about it like a product, right? Like a a style of content, and I, I don't think I ever used the phrase episodic content to describe what it was. It sort of took the streaming world and the world of fiction television to change my view on that.
0: Yeah. And you are audience building and building a fan base. Yeah. That follows you. One event, it was actually a South by Southwest event. We called the House of Modern Beauty and we had panelists and educators who came in to the house. And I will never forget that we had a very famous doctor there who has a huge Instagram following on the panel, as well as a woman who calls her podcast Skinny Confidential. And so we introduced the doctor and everybody politely clapped. And then here's Skinny Confidential. And the place erupted. (laughs) And people wanted pictures with her. And it was just amazing the fandom that is associated to someone who um, she really is just somebody who speaks her mind and is very transparent. And something I want to talk about next is transparency and authenticity, because I think that's what underpins much of the success you've had. I I don't want to speak for you, but it seems like that.
1: I mean, I hope that's it.
0: (laughs) You know, but also there's an expertise. You've certainly done your homework and a lot of research behind your knowledge. So why don't we use that as an opportunity to sort of switch gears to talking about authenticity since I sort of teed that up. And, you know, it's something that when I think of authentic leaders that I've encountered in my career, you would be up on the, the top of the podium of people who I see as somebody who's just incredibly open and sharing and truthful and as honest as they can be and, and always exploring that. And I really think that's something that is the cornerstone of not just episodic content, but how do you build a brand in yeah. this era? And whether you're a small business or large business, I think you have to humanize the experience. You have to be more relatable and stop marketing at people and communicating with them. And this only really happens when you start with authenticity. To be authentic, does that mean you have to admit you're imperfect in this world?
1: I mean, certainly authenticity suggests a level of self-awareness and self-reflection. And I think that anyone who goes through those exercises finds in themselves flaws and those flaws are not negative. That is what makes us human. That's what binds us together. You know, the perfect person is almost aberrant in a way. I don't even believe that they exist. And I think that finding those, those flaws, those weaknesses, being able to recognize them in ourselves and take ownership of them, represent them honestly, be willing to work on them, sometimes be willing to embrace them, right? And, and just accept ourselves for who we are. That's the heart of authenticity to me right? And then the I think the really challenging part is being transparent when you represent that out to the rest of the world. And that's a really hard thing because people can be judgmental, especially in non-one-on-one human settings. The same person who will listen with humility and be your friend and empathize with you if you're sitting across the table from them is the same person who will say terrible things about you online and you know, reply to your tweets and your LinkedIn posts with hatred and will snatch a protest sign out of your hand if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and tear it up. So I think that this is a hard thing for a lot of people and we have a confluence of factors that make it more and more challenging the more public and transparent you are about these things. Yeah, yeah. But it's- the key is that, I don't know about you, Tom, but whenever I have found that something is really hard, really, really difficult to do, to bring myself to do, to, to face, it is incredibly worth doing. Yep. The harder that conversation with your employee is, the more painful it's going to be, the more important it is that you do it and, and do it as well as you can in as transparent and authentic a way as you can. That fight that you're having with your significant other, same thing, right? These things, if you bottle them up and you don't express them, it only gets worse.
0: And when I think about authenticity, I, I think about my childhood and how you really were taught to perform in a certain way. And for instance, don't show your flaws. Yeah. Show your show you're perfect. I, oh, I got A. American straight A's. masculinity
1: is the worst.
0: <laughs> Tell me more.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure you've encountered this as well, right? That the way that you are supposed to represent yourself as a man, especially, you know, I think this, I wrote about this a little in Lost and Founder, right? As a CEO, right? As a leader is that you never show weakness. It is only strength and confidence that you project and portray. So no matter how bad you're feeling inside movies and television and every story we ever grew up with taught us that if you are a real man, someone who everyone wants to follow and be proud of, you take your weaknesses and you shove them so deep inside that no one ever sees them. Not that you don't have them, but that they are never discussed, never talked about. When we grew up, I think things like therapy were still thought of as, I don't know, whatever kooky and outside the boundaries of what real men are supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can remember my dad attempting to embody that, All throughout my childhood. And of course, as a kid, I don't, you know, you don't realize what's going on. You don't have awareness of like, oh, my parents are behaving this way because of these things. But now, right now, I can look back and say, oh my God, my dad was, he was broken by the death of his brother, right? My uncle was killed in a fraternity hazing incident when he was rushing college. And like, my dad was just, destroyed by that just a few years before I was born and I'm named after my uncle, right? And now I see all these things of like, oh my God, what a, what a messed up world my dad was living in and, and how all these emotions must've been eating away with, at him. And he felt that he, in order to be a real man, right, had to never talk about them, never be open about them. If you bring up my uncle's name to my dad to this day, he will walk out of the room, right? Because yeah. he, he just can't even bring himself to think about it. That is broken.
0: Yeah, it's layers. It's, and it's so deep, right? It's layers so, and layers down. so
1: deep, right? And yeah. so, yeah. like, you can have empathy for it. I have empathy for him and sympathy for him. And also, I'm like, dad, you did it all wrong. And, and I think that is exactly the same way that my dad represented his sort of relationship with racism, too. So one of his best friends in the world was a gay black guy who was his roommate in college. And they were super good friends. I remember I called him uncle when I was a little kid. And still, you know, I, I recall my dad saying stuff that is completely unacceptable, right? That, you know, he he had this view about that there are fundamental differences and that whatever, you know, he'd say shit about black on black crime. He'd say stuff about gay marriage not being viable and how that gay couples shouldn't adopt kids and like all, all this stuff, right? And, and I think it came from a, very much that same place of like, put it away, we don't talk about it. It's not represented. So do you
0: just have it or you don't? I mean, in, in <laughs> like authenticity is something where maybe you have an art and that you have something special that your dad just doesn't have that talent.
1: Gosh, I hope that's not it. I think it's like anything else. I think it is a muscle and the muscle is weak until you work it out. And you know, you can only lift two pounds. Fine. Next week, maybe you can go to the five pound one in a month. It's 10 pounds before you know it. Hey, look, I see a little bit of definition in my arm. I think this works the same, the same way. You know, it doesn't happen all at once. You have more and more conversations. You talk to more and more people. You listen to different ideas and opinions, and you don't reject them out of hand. I think one of the most painful but most worthwhile things I've ever done is to listen to ideas that I find largely outrageous and incendiary or revolutionary, and try and imagine, well, is there a kernel of accuracy there? And is there a kernel of self-exploration that I need to do around this?
0: sounds like with your father and, and that what you just said there going to the classic you know starts with empathy it's not just about yourself but also having empathy and trying to understand where another person's coming from yeah and it could just be wrong but you know at least you understand
1: no yeah it's it's true right i i grew up like any kid like any white kid in america at least white roughly middle class you know the police are like heroes and they're, they're good people, right? And you can rely on them and count on them. And if there's a problem, you call them and they'll always solve it, right? And, you know, every television show, every movie, they've been heroes for, they still are, right? In, in pretty much every work of fiction. And realizing that, oh, it's not that there's a few bad eggs. It, it might be that there are no good eggs. And having the empathy to say, well... A lot of that is structural and incentive-based, and the organizational design, which you and I do plenty of in our teams and companies, the organizational design and the incentive model, the systems that we built, the recruiting, the training, all of it is broken, right? It is designed to get the sort of closing ranks, unwilling to be authentic or transparent, unwilling to engage in hard conversations, unwilling to be challenged willing to commit violence at the slightest provocation, willing to violate the law left and right in a sort of crooked attempt at, I don't know, revenge. All of that stuff is a design.
0: It's interesting because I, I hadn't thought about it in terms of organizational behavior. And that's very interesting because one of my podcast guests was a gentleman by the name of Ken Meyer, and he goes into organizations that are broken. And he you know, parachutes yeah. in a new CEO as an interim and really has to pick up. And I said, well, where do you start when everything's broken? And he said, well, you have to start with your customers and talking to your customers. And I was thinking, well, if you were to look at that model for policing, where would you start? He would talk to the community. And I think that goes against the model today and in many places, not just policing, but in lots of fabrics of services that exist in our world. And it does take humility, and a level of authenticity to actually listen.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. And I, I mean, I think that the core of that is how we're educated and almost like civilized into a world, right? Into a worldview and into a, a structure. And for many police, I think that is one of, it's us against them. And it's, my life is on the line. I'm doing this dangerous thing. I could be killed at any time. My comrades and colleagues are constantly being attacked and killed. So I think of this as a as sort of a war zone and I'm given militarized equipment and I'm taught military style training. And so, yeah, I think it's really, really tough to come out of that experience and then have the, I don't know, fortitude, like emotional fortitude to recognize that maybe some of that is wrong. And maybe instead it requires a different model. That's that is asking a ton from I think the wrong kind of people and and the wrong kind of system.
0: Yeah. To stay on the thread of authenticity. I'd love to talk about, you know, I think of one of our operating principles. We call them BOPs, business operating principles at, at Real Self, is be direct. And that's in conversation. We just want individuals to have a really authentic conversations and and not be in a place where they have to sort of be scared to have the truth come out or the true feelings come out. And that's what we think are is one component to building trust, which is really important in an organization, particularly one that's in the technology space and in the creative space. When you were the CEO of Moz and now of your new startup, do you try to show others that, hey, you should be more like me? You know, this is be more like Rand you coach them in that way? Or is it you point to other things and and to each other? I mean, I'm just curious if it's like you call the attention to yourself and the way you're modeling behavior, or is it a different approach to getting an organization to be direct and to have authentic discussions?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first off, I want to be honest about this. and I I don't think that I was ever able to get Moz to a place that I was proud of on that vector. Mm at least not as it scaled. You know, maybe when it was a small company from, you know, 7 people to around 50 or 60 people, I think that was, you know, there were plenty of times where I felt that camaraderie and closeness where I would have said yes, people are to use the Kim Scott's sort of radical candor model, right? The challenge directly but care personally. And I think that did happen when we were a smaller organization. As it scaled up, I feel like I kind of lost control of the journey and had a really challenging time trying to build that. I don't think I ever attempted to, let's see, I think I probably attempted to model the behavior, but I don't know that I was consistently great at it. And I think I did not attempt to say you should model your behavior after me or after someone in particular, but rather tried to do kind of the rewards model, like, oh, this was really good. Let's call that out and say that this person did a good job and represent that publicly. And then mm-hmm. one of my most frustrating things, I don't know if you experienced this, Tom, but I'll, I'll tell you that for me, almost nothing bothered me more at the company than writing and, you know, whatever, an all hands or an all staff email or you know, putting out a, a blog post where I said something about this and then sent it to everyone on the staff and then finding that the open rate was 30%, right? <laughs> that, like people didn't even read it. And I still struggle with the empathy around that. Like, why would you work at a place where you don't want to every few months kind of read something from the leader of the organization and see what's going on?
0: I'm smiling right now. I totally relate to this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I'll be honest, I have never been able to get into that mindset. I mean... It's
0: engagement. I think that's just, uh, unfortunately, I think achieving engagement in an organization is one of the hardest challenges for every business leader, operator, true engagement, real engagement. People really want to be there for the right reasons. And when you can get that, that's yeah. magic, and I agree with you. in the early days, it feels like everybody is connected to the belief system, the vision, the mission. At some point in organization, I guess we've seen it happen in my company, and you do cross a, a point where you start hiring people who are just looking for jobs. and i don't I don't judge them for that. I just think it's then hard to watch the magic sort of dissipate.
1: Yeah. I think this is this is where my challenge comes in with it is that it, it's hard for me to understand the mentality right like I I want to sit down with those folks and be like hey tell me you know you see this email that comes in from your whatever your CEO and it's not like overly corporate right it's just human speak like hey this is what is going on this is what's hard this is what's good what were you thinking when you selected the message and hit delete before read like tell me about that process, right? Cuz I know you get seven emails a day, so it's not like a huge load or you know whatever it is. It's like let's talk it through. I want to know and why are you here and you could quit and get a job anywhere else. So if if you're not excited about it, tell me. <laughs> I don't I don't know.
0: Well, if you've ever uh, taught a course before, or spent time with professors, I think you would hear very similar. I taught a course at University of Washington for just a week. It was an entrepreneurship class and Oh, okay. and, uh, and a guest speaker or whatever it was called, but it was a ton of work. Okay, so I first appreciated the monstrous amount of prep that was required, and and I had to teach two classes for uh, something like six hours twice in a week, so twelve hours of work. And the first Ooh. day, I I went to the MBA class, um, the daytime MBAs, and the first question I asked was okay, so let's get a, just, I would love to know my audience here. What are you here for? And so I went, how many of you, and it was an entrepreneurship class. So how many of you are here to start a company and desire to start a company someday? No hands go up. There's a room of 75 people. Like, okay, how many of you want to join an early stage startup? No hands go up. So I'm like, what else is left? Let's see. Um, how many of you want to be involved in like entrepreneurship like within a corporation you want to be like in part of an innovation team like two hands go up and i just like i don't get it i'm running out of what could the possible motivations of this class be so i say to the guy in the front right next to me i said what are you here for he said oh man i need the credits (laughs) right yeah i was like oh no so i need the paycheck right i just you know they didn't open your email maybe hey i'm here for the paycheck man don't you get it sure i know that's frustrating and as a founder no one is going to be as passionate as you. It's just no yeah. one will possibly carry the level of passion and desire to um, make a difference in the world with your business.
1: you know you know what i I don't know if this is just my experience, but you know who tends to do that? Consultants. when I hire agencies, which Spark Toro is you know only two of us, right? It's just me and Casey, and we have hired I think five consultants or agencies. And the level of passion and commitment is outstanding. We just get extraordinary work. They, they like pay detailed attention. You know, they give us their all. Yeah, I, I never have a conversation where I don't feel like I'm getting that full, full engagement. And it makes me want to just scale the business that way. So Casey and I used a, you know, we used a consultant for our UX. We used a consultant for design and, and for sort of our art and brand. We used a pair of consultants and agency for our Uh, Launch analysis and uh, early customer feedback. We're using an agency now for conversion rate optimization. The engagement is phenomenal from every one of those people. And granted, you know, I have a good network of consultants and agencies, but I think the really nice thing too is if I ever felt like that passion and commitment wasn't there, Hmm. then next month we're done, right? And I'll find somebody else. So, Instead of trying to spend a bunch of cycles and emotional bandwidth of my own, attempting to get someone on board, attempting to engage them, just find consultants and agencies who will do the work. And if and when they're ever not cutting it, we'll go to somebody else. Yeah. yeah,
0: They have that fire in the belly that they know they have to stay connected and probably have chosen what they're doing based on their passions. And in your book, Going to and Founder, I... I really enjoyed reading it because it, it was almost moments where I just would say out loud, "Yes, a total." I wish I had known this ahead of time, or <laughs> you, you said it, and I wish more people would hear it. So it was a great, a great book, and Thank I wish you. I'd read it earlier. I was just to be honest, I read it to prepare for this conversation. But in the beginning, you're you're in the very, very start. You say your subtitle is a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. So I, I have to ask, were you saying is being Honest, painful for you? Is it painful for the listener or the reader? Or is it painful for those people who you talk about in the book?
1: Or all? I think it can be for all, but I certainly my intention was I personally in sharing this will be painfully honest with you. I think there's the truth and then there's the whole truth. But why is that painful? Because like we talked about earlier, right? When it when it comes to racial injustice, or you know, you're dealing with your brother's death or dealing with why people don't pay any attention to you, right? There is real pain in exploring the deep roots of why something is happening, as opposed to merely the surface level of what is happening. If the what is happening is when you raise venture, you are sort of committing to help the fund return minimum threshold and that requires a certain growth rate and, you know, certain metrics and, and certain amount of money. And then if you fail to get there, what happens? So I think almost every startup book that I've ever read by a successful founder, well, first off, they're almost always by successful founders. I'm putting that in air quotes for those of you who are listening. And the experience is very much a, look at this amazing and impressive thing I did. Here are some struggles that I went through to get there be amazed by my genius and fortitude and resiliency. And Lost and Founder is instead a an examination of a lot of failures and inability to get to a place of an exit, right? I, I left Moz. It's still, you know, I mean I still own stock in the company. Maybe someday, you know, if it can get out of its growth plateau, it will sell or, you know, will be worth something to me and to its investors, but that certainly isn't the case yet and all the ugly underbelly stuff that we don't talk about. That's why that subtitle exists.
0: There is certainly you know, the word entrepreneurship or I'm an entrepreneur. It does carry in our culture as sort of an air of like, wow, that's really amazing. How do you achieve that? How do you become that? And, but uh, to your point that seen probably by others in a grass is greener way, which is I wish I could be there. Because I associate with these things that I watch on TV or movies or, you know, with these rocket ship startups that suddenly this individual is a, you know, master of the universe kind of type. And the reality is it's just a grind and hard and emotionally toiling and people are trying to uh, really serve their own interests throughout the process.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And so I, I, that's why I found your book. It spoke to the heart of things I've experienced, but also just a dose of reality that's necessary to, before you venture in.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a, a very cathartic process, actually, to write it. I, I think putting down, yeah, you know, telling stories that are that intimate and and that you're that scared of having people know, yeah, that has some power. And it's, it's been remarkable to see how many people it's resonated with.
0: I remember, I don't know if it was a blog post or an email, but years ago, someone shared with me something you wrote to the company at Moz. I think it was SEO Moz at the time. And it was a very, very open and transparent, here's what's going on type message. And I think it was actually related to fundraising and just what people said and what normally no one would ever share type information. And I was wondering... Did you just get a lot of flack from that not just from the people who you referenced, but maybe per- people in the company who were really like ran why are you sharing so much you're you're sort of giving away the secrets or you're you're making people uncomfortable or what what kind of feedback loop did you get for that level of transparency
1: um, it depended on the era so in the you know in those early and scaling years at Moz I think it was is largely seen as a strength and it was seen as part of the culture. It was something that attracted most of the first 50 to 75 people who came to the company. You know, if you had asked a lot of them, what brought you here? They would have said, oh, well, Rand's writing or tag fee, right? The company's core values uh, the, the transparency that it shows, right? I like this style. This is something that I find really compelling. In later years, absolutely you know, changed, I think became more of a traditional type of tech startup, tech company. I don't think I'm allowed to go into details, but I can tell you that for Lost and Founder, there were nine or ten months of legal fighting about the publication of the book and how that related to my departure slash dismissal from the company. And it got so ugly in the first three months that we hired counsel. I think I paid twenty thousand dollars to have someone, you know, a personal attorney, fight with my company about what I could write about my experience. (laughs) Um, That gross. It was. But you're past it. Super super
0: gross. I think.
1: Yeah, we are. Well, you're published. (laughs) Yeah, the book is published, which is which is a feat on its own.
0: And I didn't see any black redacted, you know, like (laughs) CIA. Yeah, yeah, no.
1: That would have been fun to include too, but the reality is that I in my last few years burnt some bridges, and the book probably didn't do any of that any favors either well
0: it seems like you're building new bridges with you said you have a different approach to financing when I look at your blog post, you still have this amazing fan base that follows you and comments and engages so
1: yeah no it's been it's been really wonderful to see you know Tom the day I left Moz I Published a blog post on SparkToro, right? The site that I, I think I launched that site that night, and then published the blog post there. And you know, the post was called "My Last Day at Ma's, My First Day at Spark Toro." And it was like a Monday or a Tuesday. And the next six or seven days, I spent going through literally 500 plus emails, probably more than that. Just all these people saying incredibly kind things, like you're the reason I have a career in marketing, right? You helped me get my job. Whiteboard Friday was instrumental to me leveling up. You helped our small business get off of the ground. You introduced me to these people years ago. You helped us find this consultant, whatever it was. Like I I came into this office. I mean, I'm in the shed out back of my house. Came into this office the next morning. And when I opened my inbox, I was kind of overwhelmed. And then, you know, by the fourth or fifth email, realizing what was going on, Yeah, man, I, I was crying, just openly crying, like, holy, holy crap. I remember I went inside and Geraldine was, my, my wife, who you know, was at the, at the breakfast table and I was like, yeah, honey, this is incredible. Maybe all those years that I spent building that company was not in vain. Because I think, you know, when I left, I felt like it was, I felt like, I felt like I had wasted 17, 18 years of my life. The entirety of my adult life up to that point, building this thing that wasn't really what I wanted to build. And I just didn't have the self awareness to understand why. Yeah, I was heartbroken and financially broken, and all these things.
0: I was thinking about how there's sometimes a truth that you might not want to share with an organization because it would just take all the steam out of, you know, all that excitement and energy could just come tumbling out. For instance, a lawsuit from uh, somebody who's suing you for some major patent violation and it's coming from like a, a corporation the size of Google or Facebook. And you, maybe you want to shield the company and not be transparent. Can you talk about it a little bit? Like, Is there a place where you found you should draw a line where you don't want to be fully transparent? It could be the cap table. I don't know. What have you found and, and believe in at this point?
1: Let's see. I think the right thing to do is to figure out the right level of transparency for you and your culture and your, not necessarily comfort level. I think it's okay to go outside your comfort level, but to design these types of values around what you want to represent in the world and what you're passionate about and to attract people who share those values. And that could mean a very secretive culture like Apple. It could mean an extraordinarily transparent one like those early days of Moz. For me personally, right, if you're asking, like, what do you, Rand, want to build? I want to build a small company, not necessarily in terms of revenue or customers or impact. I think those things, I want to have a big impact. But in terms of number of people who work full time at the company, I want that to always be small, probably sub 50, maybe even sub 25 for the very long term. Even if the company is very successful. And that is because I believe that that's how I can build an organization that truly represents the values I want to live in the world. And I think that as you grow, it becomes increasingly difficult or impossible to build an organization at scale where I can be the person that I want to be and I can be completely transparent about the cap table and comp and you know whatever a lawsuit and every everything and have that only build trust and build engagement rather than sap it and i agree with you i think at larger sizes that becomes nearly or completely impossible and that's why it's something i'm going to shy away from
0: yeah it's interesting it does get increasingly more challenging as it seems to be attached to numbers, less so about the age of the business and more there's just thresholds you reach where information used to go directly from you and then suddenly it's water cooler in
1: other ways. Yeah, right. And like one of the things that I definitely found to be true in organizational design and in business in general is just that you have this opportunity if you are willing to be creative about it to avoid problems rather than face them head on. So meaning. I suck at sales, I don't like sales, therefore we will never have a sales team and I will never do sales. We will just ignore that entire part of an organization and build a company that is self-service where you come to our website and you buy directly from us. And so no sales is required. And so that's sort of end arounding the problem entirely, right? Just build a path that goes around it. And you can do this with all sorts of things in a company that you design. You might not realize you can do it, especially in my early years, right? I didn't realize as an entrepreneur that I could end around this stuff. But the more experience you have, I think the more you find that that's true. And then you can just decide to build your business in these ways. And one of the ways I'm going to get around a lot of the challenges of these organizational scale things is just by building a business that doesn't do it.
0: Are you going to scale or not? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, am, I am not going to scale in full-time employees.
0: A pitch never given in Silicon Valley.
1: (laughs) Tell me about your plans to scale. There are none. Yeah, there are none. And the thing is, Tom, it's it's not merely a, I don't want this problem or this challenge, right? If I thought it was the right thing to do for the company and the world and the problem, I think I would try and find ways to get over that hump. But I don't. What I don't want in the United States or the world is a few giant, monopolies controlling everything. I don't want more multi-billion dollar companies. I have no interest in that. That is bad for distribution of wealth. It is bad for the environment. It's bad for all sorts of incentive systems. It's terrible for politics because lobbying and, and political influence and those kinds of things get mixed up in it. It's bad for employee freedom and tends to be bad for Pay equality—it's just, just bad, right? Like there's no there's no winning from it. The only people who really win from it are wealthy people who get wealthier. Yourself and myself potentially included in that equation, but often investors and private equity folks and those type of people getting tons of money. Yeah, I don't want to help them. You know, no offense to my venture investors at Moz, but they've got gorgeous bajillion dollar mansions already. Why the fuck do they need more money? Why do I want to? Am I making them more money and like their LPs more money? What? What am I doing with my life? What is the point of that? That doesn't fit with my values or interests. So let's go find something else to do with our time and energy, right? And that's that's why I'm passionate about, you know, I like the investors that I have. Some of them do have money. Some of them, you know, this is the only money they've ever invested. I'm excited about that. I want to make money for them.
0: Yeah, and I think not everything deserves either deserves or needs or should be big and and pursue a path of growing big. I mean, that's certainly a conversation I've had with my earliest investors and people I really looked up to or is this really a is this a lifestyle business or is this a venture-based business and which one, you know, you don't have to make it that way.
1: Well, and just the language, right? The language is like it reminds me of the abortion debate. Right. It's like trying to politicize and bias you just from the language that's used. Lifestyle is meant pejorative. It is, it is. right. It's like you, you are not a real man, right? You're it's not a little pat on the head. Oh, Tom. Yeah. You know, oh, isn't adorable. Look at you with your 10, <laughs> 20, 50 million dollar year business. You you cutie you. Right. It's it's meant to be pejorative. It's meant to suggest that you are not that's playing right. with the big yeah. kids. It's meant to prey on fragile masculinity, right? It is designed to encourage us, people exactly like you and I, to swing for the fences and go big so that we can make very wealthy people much wealthier. Believe me, I'm out there
0: every day swinging hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right? And I was too. And I don't want to listen to that propaganda bullshit. I I don't buy into that at all. I think that we can intellectually and emotionally reject that entirely. And when we hear lifestyle business and venture scale business and home run, We can call it for what it is, which is, oh, oh, I see. You're very rich and you want to get much richer at the expense of people who are not going to be paid or compensated nearly the way you are. And you're going to take a hundred bets and 95 of those are going to fail. And all those entrepreneurs and people who work for them and the customers and the employees are going to have a terrible time. Screw you. (laughs) Like, I hope you take a hard look in the mirror tonight, my friend. One of my favorite
0: pitches I had to do was with a board member I have right now. his name is Mike Slade. He's oh yeah, um, he's a fantastically interesting individual, worked for Steve Jobs, worked for Bill Gates, and I think the first internet company. And so when I pitched him, I gave him a deck, you know, just a printed out version. He said, "Okay, what pages are the financials?" And I said, "Oh, I, slides 13, 14, 15." And he goes, okay, he tore them out." and he crumbled them up and threw them in the garbage. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, what, what is this about? And he goes, I know what it is. Let me guess. It's a, a hockey stick up to the right. And he just went through all these things that he he had predicted were obviously there. He goes, okay, what I really want to hear is the story. I want to hear about your passion. I want to hear about your interests and what what you intend to do to make a difference. And I've always thought of that moment as like a catalyst to me thinking about the business in that context and less about how do I engineer a financial outcome. And I think that's been healthy. I'm like you, I still haven't had an exit, but I feel fulfilled in that I've been able to pursue something that has let me stay to my values and adhere to my belief system and and work with great people. One of the questions last on transparency, but it's something I could talk to you for for hours and hours. And typically, we would probably be having this conversation over a cocktail. Feel free to break one out. if you. (laughs) It's only 11.43 in the morning. I will not be judging though, is that I know you've been doing Startup World for a long time, but you also have done uh, consulting work and worked with lots of different corporations. What do you see is the transparency that needs to be introduced at larger companies, larger organizations, especially now. Is there something that strikes you as needing a light shown on it or a, a conversation that needs to happen?
1: I think the list, unfortunately, is very, very long. My sense is that there are many corporations who have been working, large ones who have been working very hard hand-in-hand hand with government Quite often, uh, especially here in the U.S., where where lobbying and you know financial donorship and all that kind of stuff is is legal, or financial backing, and through those means, you know, legal and pseudo legal, there are things happening like shutting down the power of labor unions and organizations, which of course has had a depressive effect on pay equality and on you know distribution of income, even as productivity has risen massively over the last 40 years. I think that's also hugely contributing to lack of opportunity in the market. So you know, one of the weird things is we're having this conversation, of course we're two startup guys, right, and we're in a an ecosystem that feels rich with startups, technology, but the United States has the fewest new companies in 50 years. You know, 10 years ago that was true for the fewest new companies in 40 years and 30 years ago it's true for the fewest new companies in 30 years. And the smallest number of people working at small companies and new companies in the U.S. in generations, that's all really negative stuff from a broad sort of, if we were macroeconomists and we were saying, well, what creates the most health and wealth and livelihood and happiness and all those kinds of things, we'd go, oh, this is all broken. So that stuff is really messed up. I think there's obviously, you can see Silicon Valley trying to reckon with its massive racial inequality and that includes inside the ranks and also in platforms at scale that encourage, you know, racially motivated hate speech and action. And some of that is, you know, foreign propaganda. Some of it's domestic. Some of it is, you know, on an individual level. Some of it's at community level. Yeah, the list is, is so long, Tom, right? I, I, my sense is that the reckoning cannot come from inside. I don't think you can go to Google and Amazon and Facebook and Apple and Microsoft and, you know, 50 other companies and whatever, sort of ask them individually, hey, your leadership team needs to fix its problem. I think that you have to fix the incentives and the structural system. And unfortunately, the reality is the only way we have to do that right now is government. And we are not super awesome at electing people who are good at this. So. We've got to change that too. I don't know whether I have short-term hope, but I do have long-term hope. I think that it might be painful. It might get even five or 10 times worse before people wake up and fix the situation. But yeah, someone reminded me the other week of what Churchill said about Americans, which is you can count on them to do the right thing after they've tried every single other thing.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, the worst review I could find on Amazon of your book. I don't know if you look at your reviews, but you had very, very few negative posts. A lot of high-quality positive reviews. But the worst one I could find said, "Rand is mostly wrong about business and how to live." Um, (laughs) And I and I was just thinking, you know, based on you're very open with your conversation about social issues, political. Do you think political? Based views or social hot button issues should be brought into the workforce, be brought into the environment of an employment situation? Or are there some that don't belong there and should stay out? It's a lot in there to unpack, but hopefully that was uh, mm-hmm. in there you could um, offer your own insights into the appropriateness of that conversation in the workplace.
1: So my view on this is that whether you bring them there or not, they are there. They are permeating. They are ever-present. Whatever. Social and political issues are the air that we breathe, often literally, and the you know the water that we drink and the checks that we cash from our employers and how our work is structured and how we're rewarded for it or not and who gets compensated and how and how we commute to work and Interactions that we have there, it's everywhere. So, if your employer is telling you don't bring those opinions to work, what they're really saying is only I and the world around us are allowed to dictate what happens. Only I have the power and influence to do this. You are to be subservient. You are not to challenge. You are not to bring your position into this. You must adopt mine if you want to work here. Personally, I have no passion or interest in working with those kinds of people. And my hope is that many other folks will recognize that and stop doing it as well. And I think that we as individuals have the power to, when we are in fields like high tech, because there is so much more demand than supply for talented people, we can influence the places that we work to be better social and political citizens, to be part of the change that we want to see in the world and if we don't do that we're abdicating responsibility i think we're avoiding a hard conversation
0: i hear you on the yeah yeah but there are definitively topics where there is a polarization around it let's talk about like right to life choice you know the abortion conversation there people feel very strongly on different ends of that it's usually not a lot of people in the middle Does that really belong in a workplace or that conversation? And how could it, if it's so polarizing, how do you not prevent that from pulling people apart? As a business leader, you're trying to get people to work collaborative, together, in trusted ways, as we Mm -hmm. talked about earlier, authentic conversations. But if the conversation has very different views on it, how does it lead to a healthy
1: workplace? I mean, what's interesting about, well, there's many interesting things about the abortion debate right it's it's this weird like intentionally created in the 1960s political issue by kind of a bunch of rich people who wanted a, a wedge issue and you know historically right evangelical christians were were actually very pro choice and then sort of got radicalized the other way yeah the interesting part about that one is i think that you can reasonably say that in many workplaces you're not having a direct effect on that one. And I think that it is okay to not necessarily tackle every issue that is largely ancillary or disconnected from the business all the time. So racial injustice is something that is so pervasive that it, you know, it invades our work environments and runs through them no matter what. But abortion, hmm, maybe for some of us, right, potentially real self has some stuff around there, right? Because you work with a lot of medical professionals, there might be something there, right? And so it could be that real self, the right thing to do is to have a, you know, sort of corporate stand on it and make a choice and then intentionally make that part of the values and the corporate commitment, right? Like, you know, we are whatever, an organization who believes that women and people of all kinds, right, have a right to Decide what to do with their bodies and blah blah blah, right? Like, and and you make that part of the corporate statement at a place like Maz. I don't know. It's that's that's pretty pretty ancillary. I'll tell you. For me, right, if someone came to Spark Toro and they were anti-abortion organization and they wanted help and a subscription, I would refund their subscription and tell them that we are not interested in helping them and. Bye-bye, right? (laughs) You know, I think that there are probably plenty of people where it never comes up.
0: Yeah, I do agree with you on the, is this germane to our mission and vision is maybe one lens to look into what social political or religious issues brought into the workplace. But I also think about cultural differences as you cross geographies. And one thing I, we have a team in Costa Rica and we have Mm -hmm. actually people from around the world who work with us. And there have been times where a choice of words are different. How you refer to a, a female, if you're a male, you might use a term that we would never use in America. And then people get offended. And it's just sort of this really challenging thing because you know whose culture is right you know, and who's wrong. So did you ever experience that in the past where you've, you've sort of had to navigate, not just the internal organizational, how do we talk through challenging topics, but also how do we address and accommodate appropriately and or not differences in cultural views through having international teams or people who grew up in different places?
1: Yeah, sure. I have encountered some of that. And I think that those issues require, I agree, complexity and a delicate touch. And also, I think that much of the time, the right thing to do is relatively clear to leadership and sometimes it's it's abdicated in favor of a sort of well let's be sensitive to other cultures right like in this other place we're operating it's illegal and considered immoral to be gay lesbian bisexual trans queer right and so we are going to pull back on our messaging around that we're not going to you know do anything because we want to be sensitive to the to the culture there that's obviously not the right thing to do right I'm pretty impressed by Google who took a stand on that issue, right? I think tragically, I think they took a stand on that issue because they have many people who are GLBTQ plus in positions of leadership and influence inside the organization and many people who are friends with people like that inside the organization. And I think, you know, a tragedy at Google and Facebook and other places like that is that they don't have nearly as much exposure to, (laughs) crazily enough, right, to many, many black professionals. Those organizations, it's like, you know, whatever, 17% of the United States is of black ancestry, but um, like 2% or sub 2% of Google is, or sub 2% of Facebook is, right? So the, those kinds of things you go, oh, right. That's why you have empathy and sympathy and are willing to take tough stands that, you know, put you at odds with the Chinese government, put you at odds with the Indian government, put you at odds with these governments in, you know, in Asia and, and the Middle East but you are not willing to do that in the United States or, you know, whatever it is on these other ones. So I think it's tough, right? Everyone is different. You have to have those conversations and then decide, have kind of a pathway for making the decision about, Hey, is this relevant and comes up consistently enough and affects all of us. And so we should have a formal stand that we take. And if we're going to recruit in these other places, we need to recruit people who understand that these are our sort of corporate beliefs and they might represent something different from what is culturally common in their country, but that doesn't mean that we believe they're wrong. Right.
0: Boy, we could spend a lot of time on that topic in itself, but I want to close this discussion, at least, by asking what's next for you? What's next for SparkToro, Rand Fishkin? Is there another book? And if so, what would be titled? (laughs) Or what other episodic content can we expect from you or already exists?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have been doing some experimentation on the blog with some series. I just wrote a series about sort of the dirty secrets of Google, which did pretty well. And so I I might do more series like that. You know, I would say that my future with SparkToro is very much a get to profitability first, and then lots of things open up. Well, some
0: of the greatest businesses, as they say, were created during the worst of times. So. You've certainly got the environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Great Set for uh, doing something great. How can my audience find you? Is it just go to sparktoro.com or would you suggest?
1: Sure, yeah. So anyone can try Sparktoro for free. It's, it's at sparktoro.com. And uh, you can find the blog there where I write about Google and web marketing and Facebook and advertising, PR, market research, all that stuff. And uh, I'm most active in terms of social networks on Twitter where I'm at randfish.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Rand Fishkin. Awesome conversation. I.
1: Uh, Tom. This is wonderful.
0: I can't wait till we can actually sit across from each other at a table and have a coffee or a drink and catch up again. But uh, this is fantastic. Thank you. And for those who are interested, they can go to HeySiri.com to listen to this full podcast as well as a blog post that accompanies. So thank you, Rand.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Take care.
0: The best way to reach me is just send an email to Siri at RealSelf.com. That's H-E-Y-S-E-E-R-Y at RealSelf.com. We look at every single message that comes in and respond. And if you have feedback that's positive, love it. Challenges, even better. Want to be a guest, even more delightful. So please get in touch with us. Want to know more from our audience and what's working, what's not.